Our stories are so powerful when they have the opportunity to be heard. And every single person sitting in here tonight has a story. Every single person walking on this planet has a story. But most of those people will never have an opportunity to be heard. So thank you for being here tonight and extending that gift to six people who will be sharing with you this evening. Come back at the next one. Tell your friends. Let's just blow out of this room. We're going to have to get like a stadium because I just think this event is so, so powerful. And it's not just the stories that make us cry that need opportunities to be heard. It's equally the stories that make us laugh and the stories that maybe just make us come away just thinking a little bit differently than we did before. There's a quote that I read. I'm not sure who it's by, but it says, I have two quotes that I'm not sure who it's by. I searched them on Google, and it said different people. So I'm just going to say I like the quote. But this one says, when we tell our stories in a safe community, all of the things that separate us go away. There's so much truth in that. It's natural to just judge on first impression, on first appearance. But when we give someone an opportunity to be heard, suddenly it's like, you know what, we're really not that different. So tonight, as Josh said, six people will be sharing on the theme full circle. And there's a quote I read about, for, I googled full circle quotes, because what else are you going to do when you're emceeing a you know, story event on full circle? And this was my favorite. It said, sometimes life brings you full circle to a place where you've been before just to show you how much you've grown. And I have to say, it's pretty full circle that I'm even standing right here tonight because almost exactly two years ago, I was standing in this same space having been invited to share my story. And I was shaking and I was crying and it took every ounce of courage I could find inside of me to not run out those doors. But I shared my story, and it was the single largest catalyst I've ever experienced that has changed my life for the better. And it's all because of you, the audience, who gave me an opportunity to be heard. So thank you. I want to give you all a round of applause for being here. And with that, I want to introduce our first storyteller this evening. She is a woman who knows the precious gift that time is. And while I don't know her very well, uh, I'm speaking for her, but I think she would tell you that she is so grateful to have been able to become a mother and that she is so grateful to have gained a piece of knowledge that allowed her to make a choice that changed the course of her life. So I'd like to invite Kathy Santangela to the stage. I loved my old boobs. I really did. <laughs> they were there for me on my wedding day. They created a graceful silhouette in my strapless gown as I glided down the altar with my dad to meet my husband at the front of the church. They comforted and nourished my three babies in the first months of their lives. And with a teary farewell, I said goodbye to them on a chilly spring day in March. I woke up that day in my hospital bed. I'd been in a couple of hospital beds before, 
And it took me a few minutes to realize that my reasons for being here that day were very different. I, know, I knew that underneath those layers of warm blankets, two big parts of me were missing. But I was comforted by a knowledge and by the peace that it was my choice to be in that bed that day. I got to decide that I wanted to be there and I was in control of that decision. Cancer visited my family home for the first time when I was a senior in high school. It sat with us around the kitchen table when my mom told us that she'd found a lump in her left breast. It stayed for a while while she went through surgery and treatment and then it left as quickly as it came. A few years later, it came to visit with my grandma Mary. My grandma Mary is actually my paternal grandmother and she's an Italian New Yorker. She used to come to our house and she would stay with us for months at a time. She and I are actually roommates. So during those visits, I remember eagerly anticipating her walking through the front door. She would have suitcases full of her belongings. She didn't bring us toys, she didn't bring us candy, she brought us prosciutto. <laughs> she brought in all of those Italian foods that I associate with my childhood and with almost every family gathering we've had since I was young. Salty strips of prosciutto, olives, fresh bread, salami, I could go on and on. And those um, th foods will always remind me of her. She and I were very close. We spent a lot of time together. There were many a night where I had to wake her up in the middle of the night because she was snoring. Grandma, you're snoring again. She would roll over and apologize and we'd both go back to sleep. The last time she came to our family home, my dad almost didn't recognize her when she got off the plane. I was away at college and they did surgery. When they opened her up, she was so full of cancer that there was nothing that they could do for her. She was supposed to be there at my college graduation and she couldn't make it because she was so ill. Her loss had a devastating impact on my life and seeds of worry and concern about cancer were forming and growing in my mind. Cancer came back for a third visit when I was living overseas with my family. My mom called me, I was in Spain, and she told me that she'd found a hot spot in her right breast. I never felt so far away and so helpless. But for a third time, she conquered and was brave with more treatment and more surgery. Several years later, my family and I moved back from Europe, and I had just had my third child. I went in for my six-week post-baby delivery visit. I was confident. I had been here before. This was not my first rodeo. This was my third rodeo. So I had a pretty good idea of what to expect at that appointment. I happened to, on a whim, ask my doctor if she'd ever heard about genetic testing. She knew my family history. I had shared that with her. She'd never suggested it for me. 
She said, of course I've heard of it. I could tell you a couple things about it. I actually have a kit right here in my office. Would you like to take the test today? I was taken aback. I didn't know it was that easy. I didn't know that much about the test, to be honest. And I said, I'd love to take it. I switched some scope around in my mouth, spit it in a test tube, and walked out of the office. Now, I had an infant and two children, so frankly, I kind of forgot that I had taken the test. <laughs> I was a little busy, and several weeks went by. My doctor called me at home, and she told me over the phone, a portion of your test came back positive. That's all she told me. This was in November, and I had to wait through the holiday season to actually sit down with a genetic counselor to find out what this meant. Finally, in January of that year, I sat down with the genetic counselor and found out the full weight of my genetic mutation. I am BRCA1 positive, which means that I have six times a greater chance of getting breast or ovarian cancer than the general population, up to an 87% chance of getting breast cancer. So needless to say, I was shocked, scared, anxious. I was a mess. I had no idea what I was going to do with that information. But the greatest gift I was given that day was the gift of time. I got to do all the research that I wanted to do. I got to find out what my options were. And so I used that gift of time to make a plan. Essentially, my options boil down to three things. I could increase my surveillance, which meant every six months going in for some kind of scan. I could start taking drugs that had their own side effects. Or I could have preventative surgeries. So after much thought, support, and love for my family, I decided, my family and I decided, that having the surgeries was what we wanted to do. It was the most effective and most risk-reducing thing I could have done for myself. And I had three kids. I had a family. I wasn't ready to go appointment to appointment wondering if something was going to be found at that next appointment. So that chilly day in March, I woke up in that hospital bed, but I was at peace with my decision and ready for what the year held for me. My husband took our children out of town so that I could have some quiet to recover at home. And it was actually my mom and dad that cared for me. When I came home from the hospital, I had eight drains in my body to reduce the swelling from the surgery. My mom's dexterity isn't great in her hands anymore. So my dad would sit with me, and he was the one that changed those drains for me. And it is, to this day, one of the most powerful memories and experiences I've ever had with my parents. I don't remember them caring for me when I was very small. We don't remember that. And yet, now I had an opportunity to experience their care as an adult. It was so hard to let go and be cared for and not be the caregiver. And I'll forever be grateful that we shared that experience. 
My mom has since gotten tested, and she is also BRCA1 positive. Um, I have a 50-50 chance of passing that gene on to my children. But we're armed now with the gift of choice and the gift of knowledge. So I really do miss my old boobs. <laughs> but I'm really grateful for my new ones, too. Their scars tell their own story. They're a daily reminder to me that I'm strong. And they've allowed me to have some powerful conversations with my kids about our health and about our bodies. And I am grateful that I can say I'm a warrior and not a worrier. Thank you so much, Kathy. All right, our experiences, they are the thing that shapes our perspective and how we view the entire world. And often it's our experiences that make us promise to change, promise to do better, promise to make sure that another human in our presence is never made to be treated the same way or made to feel belittled. This next story will hopefully challenge you to not only reflect on your own journey, but also the paths that are taken by everyone that you encounter in your life, especially the path of someone who at first glance you only see as different from you, someone other. I'd like to invite Claudine Richardson to the stage now as she challenges us all to accept, love, and nurture the other that we encounter. Tonsi, Tonsi, where are you, Tonsi? I'm right here, Lali, Tonsi says to me. Come here, come outside. You see, Tonsi is my great-grandmother, and Tonsi is a Dutch, Portuguese, half-white, half-black Jewish woman. <laughs> and Tonsi lives in Aruba. And she likes to go outside, sit down, sip tea, eat those awful crackers that don't taste like anything, and stare into the kunuku. You see, earlier that day, Tonsi and I were walking, and someone saw us. And they could tell that we were different. And I heard them say, as Tonsi proudly walked forward, what will become of them? Tonsi lives at the very edge of the Kunuku. And if you've ever been to Aruba, you know Kunuku is the tribal land of the Arawaks. And in that tribal land, you can only navigate the Kunuku if you've been taught how to navigate the Kunuku. And the only reason I know about the Kunuku is because Dadad, my great-grandfather, a Panamanian Dominican Arawak, told Tonsi the stories that she made us learn on how to navigate the Kunuku. And Tonsi says to me, you see out there, you see out there, Lali? 
which is my tribal name for stout. You see out there, Lali? We are like the DVDV tree. We don't grow like regular trees. We don't grow straight up. We adapt. We grow slanted. One day, my mother comes to pick me up, and Tonsi reminds me to remember the stories she passed on to me, to remember the stories of the Kunuku and our people, to remember the stories she taught me about what it was like for her to grow up and escape prosecution and come to a new land. And she says, remember that, because you will have to know the stories. So I go with my mother to new lands, and in the new lands, I go to school, and I can't speak English. And at that school, a teacher says, what will become of her? Now I have to teach aliens. For the first time, I'm not seen as Arawak to my knowledge. I'm not seen as Jewish. I'm not seen as Dominican Panamanian. I'm not seen as Portuguese. I'm not seen as Dutch. I'm seen as an alien. And I didn't know what that means. And my mother had to tell me. And she said, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You are part of what makes the DVDV tree. You are the DVDV tree. And in school, I have problems learning. Yes, I speak Dutch. Yes, I speak Papiamento, our native language. But I learn differently. My mother takes me to the doctor, and I learn I have dyslexia. And the first thing my grandmother says <laughs> When I come home that evening, my mother tells her, is we'll need to beat it out of her. <laughs> but when I go back to school, and they tell the teachers, I hear a teacher say, what will become of her? What do we do with that? And I don't say anything. I go to another land. And in this new land, I'm not Hispanic anymore. I'm not Dutch. I'm black. <laughs> and the first time I learn that they don't see me as being Spanish or belonging. And I hear many people whisper, what will become of her? And I don't say anything but I feel it. I moved to Netherlands, and for the first time in my life, I realized I like someone. And the person I like is not who I'm expected to like. And I never have to wait for anyone to say what will become of me, because I know from the stories they tell what they think will become of me because I'm part of the LGBTQIA community. So I learn I have to hide it in order to survive. I now move 
to another land and I'm learning English and I sit in a classroom where people are learned how to be politically correct so they never directly ask what will become of me but they treat me as though what will become of me. You see now I am minoritized and I'm othered and my history doesn't mean anything to them. All they know is I don't fit the picture. I don't fit the model. And what will become of people like me? And then by chance, I meet a teacher, Mrs. G, a white woman married to a cop who's a scientist and teaches biology and chemistry. And she says, come, spend time with me in the evenings after class is done, and I will help you. And I sit with her, and one day she comes and she says, for the first time, what do you want to be? It's the first time, rather than hearing somebody whisper, what will become of me, someone asks me, what do I want to be? And I tell Mrs. G, with tears in my eyes, and a quiver, I don't know, Mrs. G. And she says, okay, it's okay. I will be here, I will share with you, I will teach you different ways that you can learn what you want to become. And she does. And I leave the protection of Mrs. G, and I go to college. And in this college, I'm still learning English, but I stumble upon what I believe to be the right path for me, following Mrs. G's model. I decide I'm going to be a biologist. And I enter my first chemistry class. And in that first chemistry class, there's a teacher who shall be named Mr. R, who walks in and on the first day says, my goal is to get rid of half of you. There are 75 students in the class, but when I look around the room, I'm looking at every single face of a person I can identify as an other. And because of the lessons Mrs. G taught me, I don't wait for them to ask what will become of me. I decide that I will figure that out in spite of Mr. R. I continue and I graduate with a biology degree and a degree in modern languages, Spanish. The institution invites me again and despite the many concerns of people wondering what will become of me, I am the first female to graduate with a master's degree in biology at that institution. And then I get a master's in, math, in public administration. I decide that I also want to get a PhD and I enter a program. And in that program, I decide to be astute and pull the records of my evaluations, basically identifying what they thought and how they thought I would do. And in those evaluations, I can read at that four-year private institution that the committee asked what will become of me, because despite their success rates, 
they really haven't had anyone in their classrooms who fit this profile. And it tells me that they don't believe I can finish. After a long, 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 long time, <laughs> maybe too long, <laughs> I finally obtained my PhD in leadership with a focus in higher education. And surprisingly enough, not a surprise at all, my focus is on the retention of minoritized individuals, students and staff, and how to turn their experiences into positive ones so they can be successful. And I go and work in higher ed. And in higher ed, I see the faces and the experiences of every single student who was once told or heard what will become of you? What will become of me? What will become of them? Who has been othered and minoritized? And I say to those people who ask those questions, my name is Dr. Claudine Richardson. I am Arawak. I am Panamanian. I am Dominican. I am Portuguese, I am Dutch, I am Jewish, I am East Indian, I have dyslexia, I am part of the LGBTQIA community, I am black. And you don't need to worry what will become of me and what will become of us because we have become. Thank you. couldn't help but sit there listening to her story now for the second time and just realize that the turning point for Claudine was really that one teacher giving her that opportunity to be heard for what the voice was inside of her. And if nothing else, I just feel inspired to go forward looking for the people who I could give that opportunity to. For the next story, I think that we can all relate to times when we just get stuck inside a really unfortunate situation. Trapped almost. Like, no matter how many ways you try and problem solve, there is no way to avoid the inevitable. <laughs> so with that, Scott Leadingham, come on up here. <laughs> Scott Leadingham is setting a can of beer down on a table on the stage, a prop he will use throughout this story. And he will often refer to a certain bodily function. My apologies in advance. <laughs> be prepared, 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 the motto of the Boy Scouts. Be prepared, 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 the motto of the Scouts. In retrospect, had I paid more attention to those words that I had sung so many times as a Boy Scout and as a camp staff member at a Boy Scout camp for 10 summers, I probably wouldn't be up here telling you this story right now. But such is life. And that story begins a few years ago in Owensburg, Washington, on the campus of Central Washington University Go Wildcats, my alma mater, where I had gathered with fellow alumni and friends for a weekend of fun and carousing as 
people do to remember their old college days. They were also, a few of them, friends from that Boy Scout summer camp we had worked together. And so it was after a night of a few, okay, a lot of these, they went out to breakfast and I, in my infinite wisdom, went out for a run. Because I was training for a marathon, like you do, and you had to go for a run. So there I am, about a mile away from the house we were staying at, in the middle of campus, and suddenly I was met with the international sign of impending intestinal distress. <laughs> I think we've all experienced it, but here I'll recreate it a little bit for you now. It kind of sounds like this. <laughs> you with me here? So at this point, it's not an emergency, but I know something is going to need to take place in order to remedy this situation. But no fear, for I was on a college campus. Everywhere I turned, buildings, buildings galore, and on every floor of all of those buildings, a restroom at which I could find refuse from my impending intestinal distress. And there was the library, where I'd spent so many nights and days studying for tests, writing papers. I, at this point, was still able to run up to it. And it was locked. Shit. No worries, no worries, because right behind me, the Language and Literature building. Locked. Shit. Just across the street, Dean Nicholson Pavilion. Athletic complex, basketball courts, weight training gyms. Surely there would be students in there, even though it was a Sunday morning on the weekend, in the summer, there would be people there, the doors would be unlocked, and indeed I could go on and take care of business. And so I run up to the doors of Dean Nicholson Pavilion, which were locked. Shit. Across the street, the psychology building, home to the political science department where I had spent the better part of four years as a poli-sci major. And I got there just in time, and I grabbed the handle, locked, shit, no worries, because behind Dean Nicholson Pavilion was the athletic fields, football, baseball, softball, ultimate frisbee, whatever the hell that is, and around all of those fields, the ubiquitous green, blue porta-potties that we've all seen so many times, and we've all used the, the beginning of a race at some public event, and they've brought us so much relief. And we probably never really understood how important they are in our lives. We just kind of take them for granted. Well, I was not taking them for granted at that moment, let me assure you. So with the final 100 yards between myself and my point of relief, I had now transitioned to a run to the international sign of impending intestinal distress. When one is in motion, I will demonstrate it for you now, but I'm sure we've all experienced it. It goes a little bit like this. <laughs> and I'm closing the gap 50 yards 40 yards, 30 yards, 10 yards, 5 yards. I'm there and I grab the handle of the porta potty and I see on it a lock. Shit. And I did. <laughs> I don't think I ever, in my time as a college student, experienced what one might call the walk of shame. But I certainly did at that point where I had to now walk back across campus, 
back to where my friends were at the house we were staying at and in some way discreetly get myself out of the situation that I myself had definitely put myself in. So as I walked back across campus, I'm finding myself crossing the Ganges, which I know is not a culturally woke name for a river in 2019 or ever, except for the actual Ganges in India, but I did. And that is the name of the irrigation ditch that runs through campus that students call it. I'm under the bridge at this point that crosses the irrigation ditch, thinking that I can find some form of relief, some form of resolution to this situation. And so I'm under the bridge, which is blocked from public view, mind you. And I've, I've got my shorts off at this point. And I'm on the ground with a rock trying to cut the lining out of my running shorts. And I'm trying to bathe in the Ganges, an irrigation ditch, which is probably dirtier than the situation I had just put myself in. Agricultural runoff, cattle, you get the picture. And I hear from above me on the bridge, the unmistakable sound of a dog's little nails on the concrete. And I say, shit, but I can't really say that out loud because I don't want anyone to actually hear me. That dog, mind you, was indeed off leash. And what do dogs do? They want to explore. They want to find the source of the interesting smells. Fido, Fido, where are you going? Where are you going? Come back, come back. I hear from above. And here I am. I see Fido come down under the bridge at me. And I am now a mime trying to shoo the dog away, trying to not make any noise so that a human above cannot be drawn to what is going on. Because if she had come down, she would have seen a miming bridge troll <laughs> trying to shoo away her dog. And at that moment, she would have deployed whatever pepper spray or mace or taser at me, at the bridge troll, and she would have been completely justified in doing so. I'll get you, my pretty! For whatever reason, Fido lost interest in the bridge troll and ran away without being prompted by the human. And there I found myself yet again halfway back to my destination with a decision to make. Keep going back to the house or find some other point of relief because clearly I was not finding it there. And then I remembered. I saw it in the distance. That place that would bring so much point of relief. And I could finally, at long last, employ the white privilege that I had been storing up so, for so many years and use the free public bathroom at Starbucks without concern for being stopped. So I go in the bathroom at Starbucks and I'm doing what one would do in this situation and I see to the right of me that the toilet paper dispenser is somehow not fully functional. I can't really figure out what was wrong, but there was definitely something wrong. Either it, it, it wouldn't, you know how these stupid things work, you can't, like you gotta pull one side over once one half is empty and, and just wouldn't come out in, in any case. Or some punk teenager had poured a bunch of water in there and it wouldn't unroll. 
I couldn't get any form of relief there at the toilet paper dispenser. And in that moment, I am thinking, I will write a strongly worded letter to the CEO of Starbucks regarding the nature of toilet paper dispensing in his company's bathrooms to be immediately followed by a strongly worded letter to the president of Central Washington University regarding the nature of locks on theirs. I come out of the bathroom, defeated, deflated, understandably. I have been told in my life that I possess an unfortunate, perhaps crippling amount of sense of duty and obligation to social norms. I would just call it Catholic guilt. So that is why in that moment, I found myself standing in line with 20 other Starbucks customers waiting to pick up and purchase a grande non-fat chai. Because after all, in exchange for the use of their free bathroom, despite the deficiencies in their toilet paper dispense dispensing, I needed to engage in commerce. It's a business transaction, people. It's a social contract. <laughs> By this point, people are kind of growing wise to something gone astray in the Starbucks. They're not really sure what, but there's definitely something that needs to be remedied, or at least something that needs to be investigated. I can, I can see people kind of turning their heads and sniffing the air and just kind of whispering to each other. You just, I don't know, I don't know. What I have not told you up to this point is that there was a large wildfire burning in the area, as we are used to at this point in the Northwest. But this particular wildfire was, was very bad. It had burned dozens of homes in the valley, and my friends and I had ostensibly gone to help with wildfire relief, although obviously we weren't doing much of that, and we were doing more of this. So in that moment of people looking around, kind of whispering to each other, what is that? I, to no one in particular, raise my voice and say, I think it might be the wildfire smoke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's it for sure. They seem to not at all believe, but this wild crazy man is yelling that and we're just gonna let him be. It's, it's gonna be best for everyone. So finally, I get up to the counter. I purchase my drink on the way out, past the barista bar with the, the sugars and the cream and the stirs. I see the little napkin dispenser that usually we all kind of pass over, or maybe we take one. But I, in that moment, took an extra and an extra and an extra and an extra and an extra napkin with me. Because after all, like a Boy Scout, you should always be prepared. Thank you. And with that, it seems that we should all relieve you to avoid any future impending doom. So enjoy this intermission. Use the bathrooms. Get some more uh, wine or beer. Thank you. <laughs>
the second half tonight with a woman who not only understands the power of stories, but she breaks it down even further. She really understands the power of words. And not just the words that we say or the words that we write, but even more specifically, the words inside our heart that make that little voice that we all have inside of us. And when we find the courage to listen and then to act on that little voice inside of us, suddenly it's like we're made to feel like we're right where we're supposed to be. It's that voice that is pushing us to become who we already are. So with that, I'd like to welcome Emily Gwynn to the stage. We are never entirely whole as women. We come into this world by breaking our mothers only to break ourselves into pieces of lovers, mothers, wives, friends, our maiden names scatter like shrapnel. It's no wonder we bleed. These were the opening lines of the poem I read on the finals stage for Spokane Poetry Slam's final competition in 2014. And had you asked me if I had ever imagined myself being in that moment, I would have never said yes. And that's the funny thing about circles and stories. Sometimes we end up in places that we probably should have guessed we would be, finally dawning on us that the universe had been setting little pieces of bread all along our paths just to wind up right where we started. See, my story really began 10 years before that moment before I stood on that stage. 10 years before that moment, I was a student at Eastern Washington University. I had wound up there after being a student for a long time at WSU, probably a little too long, and I had an English degree, and I wasn't really sure what to do with it. And people would often say, oh, you've got an English degree, are you gonna go be a teacher? And I'd say, oh God, no, oh no, 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 I'm not a teacher. I'm not a teacher, but I think I want to be a writer. Writing seemed like a good fit. And so I found myself at Eastern studying creative writing, poetry on the page. And it was during that time where I was challenging myself as a writer and learning about poetry that I had the opportunity to work in their program called Writers in the Community, which is still going on. And what that does is it provides writers the time, space, and energy to go out into the community and schools and, you know, share our love of language and share our love of our craft. And so I thought, you know, okay, I'll try it. I'll see if maybe this could be for me. Because at that point, nothing else seemed to make sense. The idea of an occupation, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I started going out into the community. I went to elementary schools, I went to middle schools, I went to high schools, and I thought, I'm gonna share my love of poetry. And I will tell you what, it sucked. It was hard. Because there's this funny little thing when you showed up at schools and you'd start sharing poetry, kids would say, you know, I don't like poetry, right? Poetry isn't for me. And that was really hard, because I loved poetry. And I was like, how do I get into these lives? How do I show kids the love that I had for this beautiful craft? And it was about the same time that I found myself at a Hastings here in Spokane, rest in peace, 
Yeah, I miss them. And I had found this DVD on the shelf called Slam Nation. Did anybody see it? Slam Nation, yes. Slam Nation is a documentary filmed during the 1996 National Poetry Slam. Poetry Slam at that point was really peaking and somebody had followed a bunch of different teams from all different cities who had gathered for this national event that happened every year. Every year, cities from all over the nation and beyond would send their best and brightest poets to slam poems. And so I thought, well, this is different. This is new for me. This was nothing I had seen. And so I started bringing this DVD with me everywhere I went, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. And I started showing clips and fragments and poems. Some of them were a little racy. I couldn't show the whole thing, but I would show them the parts that I thought they would enjoy. And these were some of the best poets at the time, and still some of the greats. Saul Williams, Bosia, Ebony Edwards, Taylor Molly. And kids would start watching the slam poems, which, unlike poetry on the page, a slam poem is really designed to, like, fly out into the audience and, like, hit you. You, the audience out there, get to participate by scoring and judging and booing and yelling and shouting. And so it changes the story a little bit of a poem. They become really personal and funny and light and dark and dangerous. And through bringing this Slam Nation DVD all around with me wherever I went, I found a way in. And kids started saying, oh, this is poetry. Oh, poetry might be for me. Maybe, maybe it is. And it was a quick jump from watching those poems to talking about poetry. Oh, they'd get excited. They'd start scoring. Well, why did you like that poem versus this poem? What was it about the language they used and the words they said? And then I could get them to start writing their own. What's your story? What's your story you want to share? How can we convey that to the audience? What would you share if you could share pieces of yourself? And oh my goodness, they were excited to share. They started seeing themselves as poets. And we would score, then we would have so much fun, and we would play, and the language became theirs, and they became connected to their own words. And I'll tell you what happened to me. I got hooked on teaching. Right? I mean, teaching started to feel like it could be for me, the way poetry was for them. And I decided to go all in. I got my teaching degree. I went to Yakima, where I spent seven fantastic years teaching. What, what? Teaching at Eisenhower High School in Yakima, Washington. And it didn't matter which grade or age of student I was working with. I would bring that Slam Nation DVD with me. I mean, this was before YouTube, right? Like, I needed some way to share and show like, hey guys, check this out. And I'd put on the DVD and we'd watch clips and fragments and segments and they would be like, oh, poetry is pretty cool. I think poetry could be for me. And we would find ways to open up their words 
and to hear their stories. And we would write poems. They would share their work. They would come up on stage. We'd play slam, right? And they would open themselves up to each other. Much like this space, we became more connected. We became more of a community. Every year, those classrooms where I shared slam poetry, we became a family in a lot of ways. And I also found so often, more often than not, that the quietest kid in the room had the loudest poems, right? They could find that voice. So I was really excited when my family had the opportunity to come back to Spokane, right? This is kind of where we fell in love, my husband and I. I love Spokane. And we had a little family at this time, and we thought, let's, let's give it a try. He, he got a job. We moved back to Spokane. And here I had all of this teaching experience, and I thought I'd walk right in and get myself a job back in a school. And I didn't. It was one of those things where I felt like this is what the universe wanted us to do. But time and time again, it felt like the universe was like pushing me down. I would apply for jobs and I would apply for jobs and oh my gosh, I never got hired. And our house in Yakima didn't sell, so we were in between houses and we were staying at someone else's house that wasn't even ours and it just didn't feel right. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel like, oh, I thought this was what I, the universe wanted, Spokane. I thought I wanted to be here. And then I got pregnant and I thought, ah, yes, this is what the universe wanted. The universe wanted me to have another baby. I had a daughter at the time and I thought this is perfect timing. But a few months later, I lost that baby. And I was devastated, right? I mean, kicking someone when they're really down. Now I was jobless. We were not homeless, but practically homeless. And I had no baby. And I had postpartum depression like I didn't really know could exist. I was depressed and I was in the darkest place I've ever been. And it was at that time that I happened to look at the Inlander, and the Inlander had featured a story of Chris Cook and some of the slam poets in town who had been kind of reviving this craft. And I thought, oh my God, there's a slam here. There's a slam here. I, there's poetry. And I took all that anger and I took all that depression and I said, fuck it, I'm gonna write a poem. And I did. And I walked into my very first slam in Spokane, and I slammed my poems, and I won. Yeah. I won $50. I know. I didn't realize there was money involved. And so I realized, like, oh, my goodness, not only can I share my poetry, but I can make money. I'm unemployed. This is fantastic. So I started writing poems and showing up and writing poems and showing up and the community was so gracious and encouraging. Come back, they kept saying. So I kept writing for them. I kept showing up. And lo and behold, I found myself on the finals stage where I got to read my poetry in front of all of Spokane for a chance to be on the Spokane national team. And I made it. 10 years later, I got to go to the National Poetry Slam, the same place I had been like shouting and showing to my students for all those years. And the funny thing is to me, in all of those years of teaching 
slam poetry. I had never written a slam poem. And here I was finally going to the national competition. And I shouldn't have been surprised that's where I ended up. Because after all those years, turns out I had hundreds of incredible teachers. Thank you. That one gave me goosebumps. Anyone else? <laughs> Next, we're going to hear from a woman who really tried to be sensitive to the fact that there are people in this world who feel invisible. And in fact, she actually made it her intention to make sure that she, if she was ever around anyone who felt unseen, that they would feel seen in her presence. But what her story will show is that sometimes our intentions, no matter how good they are, they just aren't enough. So with that, I'd like to welcome Jessa Lewis to the stage. So it was pretty damn surreal. It felt like a cinematic moment felt like I was living in the pages of history. I found myself on the plains of North Dakota at Standing Rock, listening to the songs that have been sung for centuries. And there was this moment of like, yeah, I'm here. For those who don't know what Standing Rock is, it was a protest that happened. It was an action on the plains of North Dakota where the Standing Rock Sioux tribe um, was fighting for the protection of their water. There was land that had been stolen from them that was theirs by treaty. And instead, a pipeline was being run right through, and pipelines leak. What was going to happen to their only source of water? And I had been invited there. It was just a few months before I had left to go there uh, that I was in Seattle standing next to the mayor and all these other important people giving a speech on behalf of a congressional candidate to honor the murder of a native man, John T. Williams. Um, and there was a ceremonial crosswalk, and I was giving this speech, and I'm a surrogate, and I was starting to feel like, yeah, this matters. I'm doing good work. And you know, as a result, I made some relationships uh, by working on the Sanders campaign, and several tribal leaders asked me to join them on their trip on their pilgrimage to North Dakota, and that's where I found myself camping with the Yakima and the Tulalip tribe, the tribal members. And at that moment, I saw this lanky guy kind of looking to see who was sitting around our little campfire where we were sitting that night. And he sees that there's a couple of young men camping with us. So he, he comes over and says, can I join you? And he sits down at the campfire. And he's trying to recruit these young men to be part of the more active protest, to get really into it, not just be there, but actually like get into it and lock themselves to the machinery to try to block this pipeline from being constructed. And he starts going off about the white people at the camp and how some of them are being disrespectful and don't understand the culture. And he said, those who I see you, they don't cook in the kitchen and they come and they take the food. They come and they grab the clothes that are donated for us. They just take it easy and lounge around all day. And I knew that Wasichu was somewhat derogatory but earned term that meant he who takes the best meat. And that there's 
was a perception of, of, of greed and taking things that didn't belong to you, the, taking the land and taking the honor, and, and, and people were walking around not really understanding, respecting the culture, and you know, I'm sitting there, not me. He doesn't know, I'm one of the good ones. I was invited here, I'm hanging out with some of the leaders. The next morning I had woke up from the camp and I heard an announcement over the speakers to come up to the kitchen that they had made a fresh batch of coffee, so I take with me this little rescue dog that we had brought along with us on the trip. Grab some coffee and i am got the dog leash in one hand and the coffee in the other. And right as I walk by the fire that's in the main gathering place where you come into the camp, the dog goes to take a shit. Like crap, how am I gonna stop this? And the look of horror on the people's faces around me. It was like I didn't know that this was their sacred fire. It's lit when all of the, um, the, the people on the North Plains come together from the moment they meet to the, to the time they close the camp. That fire does not get let out. That's a place of ceremony. It's a place that's sacred. So I had done the equivalent of walking my dog into a church and letting it defecate right in, their, in a holy, sacred place to them. And I've been walking around with some pride, like, look at me. That was a pretty damn humbling moment. Um, I ended up making several trips up to uh, North Dakota. I brought supplies, brought resources. I was there on the actions to make sure that um, the documentary crews didn't have their gear taken from them um, by the police, and I watched things escalate. I went from a, a nice family gathering to what felt like an occupied war zone, and I was seeing the media not report on what was happening. I was seeing people get arrested. There were people who were killed. There were people who were disappeared. And in my head, I'm like, this, this is my country. Like, yes, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, this is our generation Selma. I'm seeing history, but at the same time, our country's doing the same crap that it always did. And it started weighing on me because you have this perception of who we are. There's this promise that's America and I was seeing us falling short and how we were treating our people, that there was no one that would come to help. Um, so feeling that weight, and during one of the trips, uh, I, I had been asked to write an article for one of the magazines because I was helping with some of the communication work, and the trip had to be cut short, so I was scrambling and needed to get a good photo, so I'm up there at the sacred fire, and as long as it's not a ceremony, you can take a photograph because they're very protective of, don't disrespect the ceremonies, don't take photos of it, you're a guest. So I'm there with my camera trying to take a quick photo so I could have something for just the main hero image for the piece for the magazine. And one of the native ladies like, no, no, you can't take a photo. I knew it was okay. As I was part of the media team, I'd help come up with um, the guidelines for the press when they show up. But at that moment, I just broke. And I ran because I didn't want to be white tears. I didn't want to be the white lady crying. But I felt the shame. I felt the guilt of seeing what was happening there. And so I hid, and a lady that I've been working with came up to me. She said, are you okay? You know, your tears, they're an offering. But have you actually made an offering to this place? I know you've come. I know you've driven, made multiple trips. But what have you actually given. And I remembered 
For those who are not familiar, this is sweet grass. It's, it's burnt in ceremony. It's meant to represent the hair of, of the mother, Mother Earth. And when I was at that um, presentation for the art ceremony to honor the, the man who had been murdered in Seattle, as part of the healing ceremony, this was gifted to, to me, not this one in particular, but Sweetgrass would have been gifted to me by his family to thank me for being there. And I said, wait, because I've been driving all these trips back and forth from Seattle to North Dakota. This had been sitting on the dash of my car, and I didn't know what to do with it. So I say, wait, I have something I can give you. So I grab the sweet grass and I give it to her. And then she breaks down in tears. So it turns out with all the prayers and ceremony, there was no more sweet grass available. And for that night, for the first time in generations, um, basically their holy man was going to bless a pipe that had been put away of, out of sorrow because of everything that had happened in our country since contact. And she said, because you're giving the sweet grass, we're able to have the ceremony tonight. And I realized in that moment, I just needed to be the vessel. It didn't need to be about me, that it was purely about being there in support. And she asked me to come and be a guest of honor, and I said, I need to get home. But I did my role. I played my little small part. And on the way back, I started thinking, there's no such thing as good ones. There's no such thing as woke, at least in my mind. It's a process that we have to commit ourselves every day to try to do the best we can, to try to learn, to try to understand. And maybe if we do that, and instead of thinking our justice or good as some sort of destination that it's a journey, maybe we can heal a little bit and get where we need to be. Thank you. Thank you, Jessa. Last but not least, we have a story that shows how sometimes those full circle moments that we experience, they can follow us for generations, almost like they choose us because of who we've come from. I don't know her very well, but in the short time that I've spent with her, I can tell you what I love about her. She's spunky and sassy. She will make you laugh, and she has a huge heart. So, Melissa Luck. I hope we've all had enough wine. Thank you. So I believe that true wisdom, the really good stuff in life, really only comes from three places. The ancient Greeks, the Indigo Girls' second album, <laughs> and coffee mugs. So I probably shouldn't have been all that surprised not long ago. I was scrolling through my Instagram feed, as you do, through all the pictures of my very filtered 40-year-old friends, and I saw it screaming back at me as much as black text on a white mug could scream back at you. But there it was on the coffee mug. Sometimes I open my mouth and my mom tumbles out. <laughs> I know some of you get this. If you don't, it is coming for you because it comes for all of us. But someday we open our mouths and we realize we have become our mothers. Our mothers' voices emerge. Speeding doesn't get you there any faster. That's a real quote from my real mom, 
who is an educated, well-read, wonderful woman who must understand the physics here, that speeding really would get you there faster, right? But she said it to me as a teenager. I was heading out on some ill-advised Montana teenage road trip, and it was the last thing out the door. Speeding won't get you there any faster. And we make fun of her to this day. It's been about 30 years. She swears she never said it, but she said it. And at the time, I didn't realize it, because you don't realize it when it's happening, right? That as a mom, you just want to have that one second. Like, you have this one second to say the one thing that might save them from themselves, as ridiculous as it probably is. Another doozy, this is a family favorite, and she would kill me if she knew I was telling you this. So if you see her, do not tell her. Um, but she, she needed to give us the talk, right? The, the talk. This is before the internet. So you had to have the talk, how else were we supposed to all know about the birds and the bees and the whatnot? I'm convinced that she never would have actually had this talk with us, um, but we kind of forced her hand a little bit. So uh, my sister and I were in probably middle school, and we were talking in the living room and sharing stories back and forth between us about our weird friends, like burgeoning romantic quasi-sexual epi episodes and as middle schoolers. And my sister and I don't have what you would call inside voices, I also think that's a myth, by the way, inside voices. And so we're going back and forth. So we must have known that she heard us, right? But we weren't entirely positive until she stopped and she looked up from her book. And she, to this day, I've never seen her be that serious. And she looked us in the eye and she said, we don't have sex or drink in this house. <laughs> that was the whole talk. That's all we got. And 12-year-old me opens my smart-ass mouth and the, my future came tumbling out as I said to her, maybe you don't. <laughs> so fortunately, my mom has a pretty good sense of humor. But we, we bring that up again to this day. That one she does not deny. And I think it was, it's those moments where you know how connected you are. I, I think I always knew at some level that I was going to grow up and become my mom. I think that we have this connection between mother and daughter, father and son, that's so primal. Um, but I always thought like I had this deeper connection somehow to her, deeper than my siblings. And I, don't, I never knew why. But my mom nearly died giving birth to me. I'll paint you a pretty horrific picture here, but I'll leave the gory details out. But it was the 1970s, the very, very, very late, very late 1970s. <laughs> And things were not going well in this delivery room in Brown Deer, Wisconsin. My umbilical cord was kinked. It was not wrapped, it was kinked, and they didn't know how long it had been that way, how long I had gone without oxygen. My mom was hemorrhaging, and they were about to completely knock her out for surgery. This was not routine as it kind of is now, but this was an emergency C-section completely knocked out. And the last thing she heard someone say before they knocked her out was, do you think we can save them both? I think about that now. I've heard that story so many times. Sometimes my mom would tell it, just as you tell your kids the stories of their birth. I'm 41. She still brings it up probably to make sure I appreciate her. <laughs> but when you really think about it, you're, you're in the scariest moment of your life, and you don't know if you're going to wake up. And if you do, you don't know if your child will be there. Spoiler alert, they saved us both. So that's the good news. But I don't think I really understood the magnitude of that moment until 30 years, seven months, and 18 days later, I was in a hospital room at Sacred Heart. On the day after Christmas, 
in the snowiest winter in Spokane history, 2008. And I heard the doctor say, your son's heart rate is dropping. We have to take him now. He's fine, by the way. So if I start crying, like it's all, there's the spoiler. He's good. But you lay there in an emergency C-section. Here you are again. And you don't realize, even in an emergency, it takes a long time to get those things going. They've got doctors to gather and scrubs to put on and miraculously so much anesthesia to give you. And the whole time I heard that monitor and I heard my son's heart rate getting slower and slower. And I think my heart stopped in that moment as well. Even after they got him out, it was probably a full minute before I heard my baby boy cry for the first time. And I have been saying stupid shit ever since. <laughs> because you know, you, you realize then in those moments, you have this connection and you have these little tiny people that you have to save and mold and grow. And you think, I'm never ever gonna figure this out. And if you're a mom in here specifically, you know that first year is so hard and it's lonely and it's scary and you have no idea what the hell you're doing and they just let you do it. <laughs> and I never asked my mom all that time if she was scared, if she was alone. She already had two kids and, and my parents divorced when I was six months old. So she was alone with three little kids. And I think she never talked about that, but she told us like, great cute little stories about when we were babies and she was sitting in that sweet 70s rocking chair in the sweet late 70s living room <laughs> rocking me and singing you know singing sweet it was like do you know where you're going to do you like Diana Ross 1976 like she sang to every baby then you know and it sounds so sweet and wholesome and then you have your own kid and you're like what am I doing with this baby who gave me this kid and then you're like, oh, I'll sing to my baby. And so I did. I, I, I'm a trained singer. I'd sing to my kid. I sing, we sing what's in your heart. Seven o'clock on the dot, I'm in my drop top. No, like I sang 90s R&B to my kids. I sang like Usher booty call R&B to my kids. And you think to yourself, like, I am never going to figure this out. And then one day you do. One day you figure it out and you start to stand on your own two feet. And you look at your kids and they're healthy and they're happy. And you realize, maybe I'm not doing such a terrible job after all. And then you're standing in your kitchen and looking at your two little boys, these perfect angels, and you realize in the moment that's happening, you have one chance to give them the advice that might save their life, that might actually make them respectable, grown adults. And you say to your young boys, we don't take our penis out for a joke. <laughs> and that's what I said to my kids. And I said it, and I, and I got a reaction. And... And all I could do was laugh because I thought, I'm going to hear this for the rest of my life. I have now said that so many times that I want to cross-stitch it and put it on my wall. And it's good advice for all you men at any age, by the way. We don't take our thank you, right? Like, don't do that. But those are the things that, you rem those are the things that my kids are going to throw back in my face for the rest of their lives. They will not forget that, especially as I keep saying it. But we don't forget and appreciate in those moments the things that our parents say that stay with us forever. The talks that my mom had with me when I was in my footy pajamas and my strawberry shortcake sheets. The no monsters in your room talk, right, that helped you go back to sleep. The boys are stupid talk that she had with me in middle school as blue eyeliner streaking down my face and my bangs are as big as my dreams. <laughs> and it was the 90s, so it was the early 90s, sorry. And the, and the moments that they don't say anything at all. My mom dropped me off at college thousands of miles from home. I didn't know anyone. 
And that elevator door closed, and I lost it. And I never saw her cry that day. And maybe she did, because I think of my, my boy's going to college, and I start crying, and my oldest son is 10 years old. <laughs> but, but they know that in that moment, they need you to know that they're strong, that they got you to that place. And the moment, the talk we had, my mom walked me down the aisle. And that one I have to keep here. But we know those moments matter. We know we're making a difference. And we know we have to keep giving that advice in those moments as they happen. Not long ago, I had one of those moments. I thought, I got this. And I saw the young men that my sons are becoming. I was in my room, and I said to my eight-year-old son, Danny, the same advice I have given a million times, we don't take our penis out for a joke. They're still doing it. And my eight-year-old, who, much to my husband's dismay, is me in an eight-year-old little boy's body. He looked at me, he opened his mouth, and his mom came tumbling out. Maybe you don't, he said. <laughs> Thank you. All right, you can wipe those tears with me. Thanks, Melissa. Um, 